So I looked up the uh, definition for chaos in Webster's online, and the first line was being a teacher, <laughs> right? Not really. Right? So, I mean, so many people that I talk with that are teachers, especially those that work with young kids, it's like, that is chaos, right? It's like you can't herd the kids together in one direction enough to have any sort of order to one's life. Um, I think another good definition would just simply be married with children. Um, in some cases, just married. <laughs> Sorry, guys, for all of you who are doing premarital counseling right now. I mean... <laughs> You know, it's really funny. Just about everybody that I do premarital counseling with, they're like, after the first session, they're like, why are we doing this? This sounds horrible. <laughs> Marriage? Why would anybody get married? <laughs> I did my job, if that's the response, to be quite honest with you. <laughs> it's kind of like going into ministry. You absolutely have to try and be talked out of it. And then if you still can't get away from it, then you're probably called to do it. Um, you <laughs> if only people did that more with marriage. Tried to talk everybody out of it, telling them how hard it is, because um, it's, it's, it's good too, right? It's good. So seriously though, chaos. Webster's Online defines it this way, complete confusion and disorder. A state in which behavior and events are not controlled by anything. The state of the universe before there was any order and before stars and planets were formed. That's number two, believe it or not. Another definition, the confused, unorganized straight state of primordial matter before the creation of distinct forms. I like that one. Or maybe this, the inherent unpredictability in the behavior of a complex natural system, a state of utter confusion, a state of utter confusion. I want to read for you Genesis 1, 1 through 3. Actually, 1 through 3, the first half of 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Let me read it again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Verse 2 can actually be translated and is translated in a couple of places, something along these lines. The earth was shapeless. It was a chaotic mass with the Spirit of God brooding over the dark, dark vapors. In the beginning, the earth was formless and void. It was in a state of chaos. And in that state of chaos, it was totally useless. Chaos ruled the earth, and the earth was unable to sustain life. When I say useless, I mean useless for us. It was a good thing God didn't create humans first. <laughs> but above that chaos, above this dark mass of strangeness, the Spirit of God hovered. 
And God spoke to the chaos and brought what seemed to be something uncontrollable into order. And only with that ordering does the earth become inhabitable. The earth's being ordered creates a dwelling that sustains life. All life. Human life. But creation as we know it right now does sustain and experience a level of chaos. God makes order. We make chaos. <laughs> right? Has anybody experienced much chaos in their life in the last weeks, days, months, years? I know I certainly have. We bring chaos into our lives when we fail to surrender to God's word. God has given us, in some sense, and this is a large discussion depending upon how deeply you want to go into it, free will. He's given us free will and we, we choose, I should put that in quotations, we choose to live in order with ourselves rather than in order with God. When we rebel, when we sin, when we just do whatever we doggone will, please, yeah, we bring chaos into the world, into our lives, and into the lives of others. And that's where it gets really complicated, because sometimes we experience chaos, not because of something that we've done, but because of something somebody has done around us. Or maybe we, bring, we experience chaos in our lives, not because of anything we can even point at any one person having done. It just shows up because the world is broken. But even though we experience some state of chaos in the world, by God's word and by his creation, by his grace, creation is still in a sense ordered by him. That same word that created and the same word that separated and the same word that made order in creation is still holding it together. He sustains some sense of the order within the world as it is in its most basic structures and makes the earth a place that still sustains life. Without his order-making word, the earth would simply return to being formless and void or worse yet, just cease to exist altogether. I like to think of it this way. The end God said that he spoke at creation is still ringing out in all of the earth, holding it and sustaining it. If God withdrew his word, it would collapse. The waters above and the waters below would no longer be held apart. And the, the result would be death for the things that required dry land. Does that sound familiar? The great flood. It's exactly how it's being expressed. The great flood, there's chaos throughout the entire world. Everybody is simply doing whatever they doggone well pleased. It's described this way. Then the Lord saw 
that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only on evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and his heart was grieved. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and the birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The earth was so corrupt before God And the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their ways on the earth. The great flood is the story of God undoing creation. It's God saying to his people, if that's how you want to live, if you want to live inviting utter chaos into the world, if you want to live in utter rebellion, just doing what you want without any congruency with what I say, I'll show you what chaos really looks like. Sounds really harsh. It sounds really harsh. I think at the end of the day, it's quite gracious, quite honestly. But once God has done this great flood and this destruction... He is grieved. He's grieved that he has to do it in the first place, and he doesn't like that he had to do it, and he promises that this is never going to be the way he's going to do it again. Right? One of our littles, we were just talking about this last night. Was it Ethan? He's like, what did he say? How did he put it? Yeah. That's right. It's, it's the way of God reminding us that that's not the route of redemption. Redemption which is God's desire from the beginning of the tainting of creation by the chaos we invite through sin, that desire that God has to redeem and not destroy, of course it's going to come through not destruction, but actually through an act of new creation, God speaking his word into our existence again. That same powerful word that came, that created to begin with, that created out of nothing and then that created order out of chaos, that same word was going to be spoken into his world again, and a new act of creation was going to happen. An act of new creation that we have to receive. The Exodus story. I'm jumping quite a ways ahead, aren't I? The Exodus story is all about God bringing order out of chaos through an act of new creation. Have you ever thought of the Exodus story as God doing an act of new creation? Hmm. Let's explore that thought for a moment. So at that point in the Hebrew people's lives, they were experiencing extreme injustice. Under the hands of an oppressive pharaoh, a king, a ruler of an empire. They were being held under his thumb and made to do whatever he wanted. And being forced into extreme Situations of uh, making bricks out of mud day after day after day after day. And the more they would grumble, the more work they would have to do. And the more they started crying out to God. And God hears their cries. And God brings them out of that situation into what honestly seems for a little while like an even more chaotic situation. Like it's chaotic enough to be exploited. But now God is delivering them from that chaotic experience 
and he brings them to the shores of the Red Sea. And by the way, a slight side note, but something to keep in mind throughout the rest of this message. Does anybody know what the sea represents for the people of Israel? Chaos. chaos. Absolutely. So here they are at the edge of chaos, <laughs> the edge of the Red Sea. And here are their enemies pressing them on the other side. They're being pressed in on all sides. They can't go across the sea because it's chaos, because you can't get across it. It's Who knows what's even on the other side? And here you have Pharaoh chasing them down, the chaos they're trying to escape, and they're ready to, what are they going to do? Of course, they're, really, they're mad. If you brought us out in the middle of nowhere to just die, we would have been better off being slaves that chaos is better than this chaos. We've got chaos all around us. There's a seemingly impassable sea in the front of them and a tremendous foe behind them. Can you imagine, like when you think of just chaos and confusion, can you imagine how confusing that would be? <laughs> you... It's really difficult to imagine situations of chaos that enter into our lives out of seemingly nowhere and the outcome of some of that chaos that we experience and see. But when you think about what this, this people were facing, I mean, I'm sure they thought they and their entire families and their entire race of people was on the brink of extinction. They certainly weren't going to stand up to Pharaoh's army. There had to be a great state of confusion in this chaotic situation. But God created order in the midst of their chaos. He overcomes chaos by making the seemingly impassable passable. He does it in a sense that's really connected with the creation narrative to begin with. I think we, we think we miss it. What does, he, what does he make? He separates the water on the ground and he makes dry ground and he makes a passage through chaos with his spirit hovering above it for his people to get onto the other side. And then that chaos swallows up the chaos that was chasing him. He delivers them. It's a story of new creation. A story of God taking what seems to be an impossible chaos and overcoming it. This story becomes a crucial story in Israel's history. A crucial story of deliverance out of chaos and into new creation. And this story is recast and retold more than once in Scripture. As a matter of fact, after the 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness, what does God do? He does another act of new creation, creates some dry ground where there's an awful lot of water, a little less water than the Red Sea probably, but it's called the Jordan River. As he ushers this new people into this promised land. So as great as that story is, in salvation history, this deliverance across the Red Sea, this miraculous thing that God does in dealing with the chaos that's pressing in on them and the chaos that's before them, it is actually a shadow of an even greater story 
that comes after it. I want to read that story for you. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida. Well, he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by. But when, he saw, when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. He, they cried out because they saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. I didn't read the whole long text from Exodus for you, but I want to mention a couple of things that connect this story intimately with, this, with the Exodus story. I'm going to mention really two of them. One is that as the Egyptians are marching after the Hebrews in Exodus, they were terrified and they cried out to the Lord. I don't think that we want that we're supposed to miss that connection. There's an even stronger one. And let me tell you a little bit more detail about Jesus walking out on on the water to these disciples. You I'm not going to ask you this question, I'm just going to tell you. What happens right before Jesus walks on water, right before he goes out to his disciples straining at, a, on, on, at the oars of a boat, is he feeds 5,000 people. And right after he feeds those 5,000 people, he sends his disciple immediately to get into a boat and get on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. That's another connection that it has with the Exodus story. Do you remember how the Hebrews were not supposed to leave Egypt slowly, but they were to do it quickly. Tuck the garment of your, um, into your waistband and get the heck out of Egypt. Do it immediately. Do it now. Do it fast. The next thing Jesus does after he tells them to immediately go up into the boat and start going across the lake is he goes up on a mountainside to pray. So he's up on a mountainside praying, and his disciples are going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, probably four to six miles to the other side. And these guys are fishermen, and they're boat rowers for the most part. I mean, you got to throw a tax collector in there. He's probably got puny little arms. But, <laughs> but the rest of them, you know what I mean? They're like manly men. They can row, right? It should be, you know, an hour or two long trip at the most to get to the other side. But this happens at, at, just at evening time, which technically would have been the first watch of the night. And Jesus, he is said to have seen them straining at the oars. They're trying to get to the other side, and they can't. Apparently, they haven't made it very far, because he can still see them, right? And then it tells us, on the fourth watch of the night, Jesus finally walks out to them. So they're out there all night long, trying to get to the other side, which sounds a little bit cruel. It's the fourth watch of the night. Guess when God delivers the Hebrew people? During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. The chaos that was pressing in on them was going to be dealt with 
by God. Not actually even on the Hebrew people's timing. It was going to be the last watch of the night. When everything seemed dark and bleak and there was no hope, God finally swoops in. In the same way, those disciples are out there trying to, can you imagine that? Being out on the sea, you already think that the sea is chaos. It's uncontrollable, and there's a storm that's brewed, and the wind is coming up, and the waves are slapping against the side of the boat, and you're just trying to get across. And you're waiting and waiting and waiting six, maybe eight hours of trying to row something that should take you an hour or so. And you're waiting and waiting, thinking possibly your life is going to end. They scream out when they see Jesus, thinking that he's a ghost. They were terrified. We're also told, interestingly enough, that Jesus was about to pass them by. It's about to pass them by. That doesn't sound very nice. Jesus, I thought you were humble and gentle in heart and your yoke is easy and your burden is light. I've been out here rowing for six hours. You wait. You saw me in the early evening and now you come out finally four, five, six, eight hours later and you're going to finally come and help me and then you intend to pass me by. That doesn't sound very nice. Actually, that's the language of theophany. It's the language of God revealing himself. It's the language of God Almighty making himself visible to people. It's usually when he does it as the fourth watch of the night, interestingly, throughout Scripture. And usually when he does it, he passes by. You guys remember when, you remember when Moses said to God, show me your glory. I want to see your glory. I don't know what that means even. <laughs> well, I kind of do, but I mean like, <laughs> show me your glory. And God says, I will make my glory pass by. Make my glory pass by you. Jesus isn't really trying to be mean. He wants to teach them faith for one. And he wants to teach them who he is. That he is the one who is God's word spoken into our existence to right the chaos that comes into our lives. When you and I are straining figuratively speaking, maybe some of you literally speaking, at the oars of life and just trying to figure out where you're headed. And it doesn't feel like God is showing up, that God is going to be there. And you're waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting until finally the fourth watch of the night God shows up. I want to encourage you to wait. To wait on God. To trust Him. He is the one who walks into the storms of our lives and speaks for peace and speaks for the chaos around us to be stilled, the storms of our lives to be stilled. God can create order out of chaos. He did it in the beginning, and he can do it now. He loves us so much that despite the fact that we are the ones that have invited chaos back into the experiences of the world, God 
still deals with it. He still overcomes it. Even when we have totally blown it and our choices are bringing about some repercussions that we don't really want to face, God does not abandon us. He is still with us. And He will be with us through it. We have to trust Him and have the courage that He can do something about it and that He will do something about it. He still loves us. And He still brings order into our lives. I'm also struck by how both of these stories teach us that God calls us into situations where we might find chaos swirling all around us or pressing in on both sides of us. Sometimes when we experience chaos, again, it isn't because we can point to anything that somebody in specific has done wrong or that we've done wrong, but God calls us into situations where we might have to experience a little bit of chaos. The Hebrew people are leaving chaos and they're experiencing chaos before them and chaos behind them, but they're right where God wants them to be. They are right where God wants them to be. Just because you may be experiencing chaos in some way in your life does not mean that you're not right where God wants you to be. And I love that God comes between the chaoses of our lives. I didn't read that part. <laughs> listen, listen to this. This is back in Exodus 14 again. This is the situation with the Hebrews on the shore of the Red Sea with the army of Pharaoh pressing down on them. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar, of the pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. When it's desperate in our lives and we don't know if we could possibly go forward or if we should turn around and go back because neither decision seems right. God is right there in the midst of it with us. When we feel totally stuck, God is right there protecting us. He comes between the chaoses that we might discover in our lives. And He cares for us. And we can cry out. Both of these groups of people, they cry out. One, even because they have a total misunderstanding of what's going on. Right in their midst, they've seen Jesus, these disciples of His that are in the boat. They've seen Jesus. They've even seen Jesus in their own presence calm a storm. How much, I bet you, they wanted Jesus to be with them at that point in time. But nonetheless, even when he comes walking, they cry out in terror, not even realizing who Jesus is. And he still cares about them enough to get into that boat 
and to deal with the situation they find themselves in. We can cry out. We need to cry out, even in our confusion, even when we don't understand. Don't for a second think you've got to get everything about God figured out before you can cry out to Him. You can cry out to Him with no understanding of who He is, and He hears us. He wants us to learn. He wants us to have a better understanding of Him. But in whatever level of understanding of Him you have, cry out to Him. He hears His people. And again, sometimes we have to wait till the last, seems like the last possible second. The fourth watch of the night. The 11th hour, we just have to wait. We have to wait for God to do the things that we cannot do, and when we try and do them, we only mess it up worse. I know none of you ever do that, right? (laughs) We have to wait, and it's hard to wait. It's hard to wait. But God can bring us peace. God wants us to experience peace even amidst chaos. Because again, we live in a world that has a level of chaos in it that is not by God's design, but by our invitation. And just as Jesus dealt with chaos by calming the storm and finding the disciples still, even in that calm storm on the lake, they were still in some sense, hovering themselves in a boat over chaos. The chaos was not so horrible that it was spilling over into the boat, threatening to drown them. God calls us to live in a world that's filled with some chaos. He brings peace into our experiences in this sometimes chaotic world. So that it doesn't overwhelm us, doesn't sink us, it doesn't destroy us. But instead, we have that blessed opportunity as we are filled with His Spirit to be not unlike His Spirit hovering over the chaos, bringing hope and light and peace to a sometimes dark world. So take heart. Take heart. While in this world you will have trouble, Jesus has overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the chaos that we've brought in. Jesus has overcome death itself. Jesus can calm the storms of our lives. You can cry out to him. Where you find chaos, cry out to him. Whatever that looks like. Maybe it's literal shouts. Maybe it's literal crying, maybe it's something deep down inside of your being, but cry out to God. He will bring you peace, and he will make you into a peacemaker. Amen. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, thank you for this act of new creation that you're doing. Thank you that you... you are not a God who desires to destroy your creation, but you desire to redeem it. Thank you for making 
dry ground where it seems as though there's no footing or place for us to exist and dwell. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have revealed yourself to us, that you speak to us, that you speak to the world around us and tell it to be calm. Father, I pray for those in our church tonight that just need some calm and they need some peace. Be their peace, Heavenly Father. Bring stillness into our inmost being. Let us find hope. Let us truly take on your yoke as we come to you and learn from you. Thank you that you are so gentle and humble. Thank you that you're gentle with us. Thank you that you knit us together, you form us, you mend us. We love you so much, Lord God. And we praise you. Amen.